Amen. We are starting a brand new series today entitled, This Changes Everything. This Changes Everything. And so uh, in just a moment, we're going to go to a passage that is not normally considered a Christmas passage. And so if you want to turn there now, you can. Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, if you have your Bible, and I do hope that you do. Uh, go there on your device or on or with your actual paper Bible, uh, Galatians chapter 4. We'll get there in just a moment. But as we're starting this new series this morning, uh, this changes everything. I wanted to really prepare our hearts for Christmas to come. That as we're journeying towards Christmas Day, I want us to discover that the coming of Christ literally changed everything. That the coming of Christ literally changed everything. And so let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever received a gift that you would say when you received the gift for you at that time, that and from that point on, to some degree, it changed something in you, or it made something easier, or it was just something that you were like, wow, I never thought I would use this, and now I use it all the time. Has anyone ever received a gift like that, okay? I'll give you one of the ones that, it wasn't given to me, we actually gave it to Sandra, and uh, it's one of those things for the house. You know, I don't know why, but maybe some of the men here can relate with this. Every time it's Sandra's birthday or Christmas, we always ask for lists, okay? We're all about lists. So I'm not super creative, okay? So I asked Sandra, give me your Christmas list. Men, why do we want a list? So we get what they, right. If you leave it up to me, I'll come home with something trick. Like, oh, that's nice. That's so nice. Thank you for trying. I mean, I like it a lot, you know? No, she's never said thank you for trying. But when I ask for the list, you know what's amazing? And, and again, maybe some of the men can relate that have either you buy stuff for your mom or your wife or whatever. Have you ever had it where half the list is stuff for the house? Like, you ever have this? Like, Sandra one time was like, mmm, Christmas gift. New towels for the kitchen. <laughs> How's that a Christmas? That's not for you. That's for everybody. Like, there's just towels. Like, or it's like some kind of an appliance. Like, oh, I would love one of these What's that thing you got the one year, the Instapot thing, right, or whatever, okay? She's like, that'd be great. I was like, that's an appliance. That's for the kitchen. Like, don't you want something for you to enjoy? And then she's like, yeah, give me a book. Buy me a, a book or a gift card for a book. And I was like, oh, okay, just so, so exciting. I can't wait to get out there and shop for Amazon gift card for a book. So, but when you think about the gifts we received, we, a couple years, maybe it was a year ago, we bought Sandra, and we got one of those Alexa Echo things, right? You guys have these, right? Google or Alexa has these things. And when we got it, I remember thinking the boys really were excited to get it for her. And I was like, that's kind of cool because you can ask it to do things while you're multitasking. And she's a big multitasker and that'd be cool. So we put it in the living room. And I remember thinking the first couple of times we had it, I was like, I'm never going to use this thing. Like this is, what do you need this thing for? Like it doesn't, I don't need to say Alexa, blah, 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 right? I can just figure it out for myself. Okay, a year later, I ask Alexa everything, like all the time. It's like amazing. And then we get those smart plugs. You guys got the smart plugs? So now we can say, Alexa, turn on the TV, and it turns on, okay? Changed everything. See, when we were kids, when we were kids, we were the Alexa, right? It was like, go turn the TV on. Okay, Dad, I'll go turn the TV on, right? Because you had to actually go, what, to the TV and flip a switch, and you hear that thing power up. It was like a space shuttle, like you're Houston. <laughs> These things firing up, right? We can watch it in 20 minutes, okay? Let it warm up. In 20 minutes, it'll be ready to go, Okay? Remember we had this one, you guys remember the big, huge floor ones, right? The big wooden frame. The TV was like this big, but the box was like this. When I was real young, we had one of those, and you had the dial, click, 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 right? And I remember one time we were watching something we weren't supposed to watch. We got left home alone for like a half hour. I was probably like, I don't know, eight or something like this. My parents were like, we're just running to the corner store, buying some groceries. Behave, okay? As soon as that car left the driveway, what did me and my older brother and I, what did we do? We just looked at each other and said, mm-hmm. Go to the TV, click, click, click. At that time, it was, um, this would have been like late 80s, so early 90s, so like Simpsons, I think was what we weren't supposed to be watching, okay? It's amazing. Non-Christian parents, non-Christian home, but they said don't watch Simpsons. I found that kind of funny to me, okay? But I, anyway, watched it. So they pull in the driveway. What do you do? Click that bad boy off, right? And you're staring at the screen as it's like powering down. You're like, go away. Go away, okay? My stepdad walks in looks at us, and we're sitting on the couch. He said, what'd you guys do? I was like, nothing. We just, you know, read the Bible for a little bit. No, we didn't do anything. He comes over, and he puts his hand on the back of the TV. 
Can I tell you, I'm really glad for like, you know, technology advancing in the next couple of years after that, because then you couldn't really do that. But he did that. He put his hand on the TV and said, oh, you guys were watching TV, huh? He's a psychic. <laughs> he can predict things. How does he know? And then he turned it on. Guess what was still on TV? Yeah, Simpsons. Okay, so it wasn't exactly rocket science. But many of us, I say all that to say this, believe it or not, there was somewhat of a point there. We receive gifts, and sometimes in, in the physical, or in, in this world, in this life, we'll receive a gift, and it seems like it changes everything. It makes something super convenient, okay? Maybe some of you years ago, you know, you can get remote start for your car. If you didn't have it on there, you could buy it, have it put on there. Some of you maybe did that, and now all of a sudden, it seems like it changes everything, because now I'm not going to go up and go out and warm up the car. I just hit a button, and it, oh, look at that. It, it changed, right? It made something easier, more convenient. Uh, it was a gift that made your life seemingly better, like you can enjoy something a little bit better now. For some of you that are big sports fans, okay, getting that big, huge flat screen TV, you know, that 60-inch flat screen, that changed everything. Oh, now I can really enjoy the game. We all have received gifts like this, gifts that maybe made us feel like our lives were a little more convenient, a little easier, a little more comfortable. But when we talk about the greatest gift that was ever given— the gift of Jesus Christ for the redemption of our souls, to save us from our sins. I pray that we would know that when we talk about how God has changed us in the coming of Christ, it's so much greater than anything we've ever experienced. The fact that we've been changed for eternity, all really of eternity has been changed. As we start to look at the birth of Christ as the greatest gift God has ever given humanity, I have to note that the gospel writers actually give us very little of the birth of Christ, meaning detail. When you get into the Gospels, and in the New Testament, you get into the Gospels and you read about the birth accounts, the actual, here's where Jesus was born, here's what happened. If you look in the four Gospels, as far as amount of Scripture given to that, amount of detail given to that, compared with other things that Christ did, there's actually very little. I'll give you an idea of this to kind of explain what I mean. The Gospel of Matthew, when Matthew writes gives us eight verses, roughly eight verses detailing the birth of Christ. Okay, so roughly eight verses. This is talking specifically to the birth of Christ. Mark, when you read the Gospel of Mark, what does Mark do with the birth of Christ? He just kind of jumps over it. You get into the Gospel of Mark and Jesus is just there. He's just, it lets just go. You get to Luke. Luke gives us some 20 or so verses detailing Christ's birth. And then you get to the Gospel of John, and John gives us about 10 words, more or less. He gives us about 10 words, and he doesn't really speak of the birth of Christ. He gives details about that Christ was God, and that God, what, took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory. That's the idea of how John speaks of the incarnation of Christ, or the, the fact that Christ was born of the flesh. And so when you look at the Gospel writers, you read those, and you think, man, there's some detail there. I mean, I think Luke would probably be the most popular one that a lot of people go to. Obviously, Luke and Matthew both get read a lot during this time of year. But when you look at those accounts compared with the rest of Christ's life, you would think there should be much more here. And we might get the impression that, well, the birth of Christ isn't really that important, doesn't really make that much of a difference. But while the gospel writers didn't give us much in the way of detail, in the Old Testament, we see various prophecies that pointed to the coming of Christ. So we get into the New Testament Gospels. There's some there, but man, it seems to kind of just speak about what happens. Okay, he was born here. This happened. The shepherds came, and on we go. Next thing you know, we, he's 12 in the temple. Then he's 30 getting baptized and beginning his earthly ministry. So kind of these snapshots, and then he's 30. And the last three and a half years, roughly, we get a lot of content, a lot of detail on compared to those first 30 years. But when you realize that the gospel writers are really kind of speaking to some things in the Old Testament, you see a bigger picture. And that's really what I want to do this over this series, but also even this morning, is to get us thinking, it's not just what the gospel writers revealed to us about Christ's birth and what Christmas really means. It's the whole picture of what the Old Testament prophets had given us. You see, when the gospels open up, it's continuing a very Jewish story. Right? When the Old Testament ends, we have the Jews that are kind of under this idea of bondage, right? And then they're kind of getting out of that, getting out of captivity. They're, they're rebuilding their land. And then there's this silent period that takes place. Then we see the New Testament open and the Romans are in charge. And they're again kind of under that oppression of the Roman Empire. 
And so this story opens up with some Jewish kind of hints and some Jewish references to the Old Testament Messiah who would come. So to get a real picture of this, we're not going to go through every one of the prophecies about Christ and his coming or his birth, but I want to give you kind of an overview. You see, in the Old Testament, there are roughly 300 prophecies connected to Christ. Over 300 prophecies, roughly, depending on how you count them and which ones you count as prophecies specifically to the Messiah, about 300 prophecies connected to Christ. And some of those 300 deal specifically with his birth, with his birth. They spoke of where he would be born when you think that it was the the city of Bethlehem. So when you think about this, he says it's going to be born in the city of Bethlehem. Now, let me ask you a question. Just kind of give me some feedback here. Let's say, for for just argument's sake, the Old Testament prophets didn't know what they were doing. They weren't really filled with the Holy Spirit. They were just kind of fabricating a story to to push control and religious control, okay? So they're just kind of talking about this Messiah to come. It's just, it's good hopes and good dreams. But let's say for just a second, they weren't really prophesying. They were just kind of making it up as they went, okay? So let's kind of just imagine this for a second. You're a prophet in the Old Testament. If you're going to prophesy about the coming Messiah... Would you, A, say he's coming to this specific small city in a specific small region that's not really super populated? Or would you just merely say he's coming to the nation of Israel? Which would you say? I, I think I would go with, I'm making it up and I want to be as careful and as, but as vague as possible so that I can probably be right. I'm not going to get specific with the city. I'm going to say what? Well, one day he'll come to Israel. Now there's verses like that in a general sense, but I would have kept it there. Why? Because if the Messiah shows up at any point in the future, in any area of Israel, what can they say? Oh, he was right. They were right. But when the prophets got as specific as saying, oh, no, no, he's going to be born not just in Israel, not just in this region, he's going to be born in this city. And that's super specific, super detailed, which again would make us believe that these were not just guesses, these were not just hopes and wishes, these were actual prophecies given by God to man so that we would know what the Messiah, or where, rather, the Messiah would be born and what he was going to do. When we start to understand the sheer numbers behind Christ fulfilling these prophecies, it is purely overwhelming. I want to give you a couple examples of this, just statistically what the odds are of this Happening Now remember, we said there were how many prophecies? Over 300, or roughly 300 prophecies. The chance of any one man fulfilling these prophecies, the chance of any one man fulfilling these prophecies would be 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Okay? So 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's just fulfilling the prophecies in a general sense, just one or, or just one specific one. The chance of any one man fulfilling 48 of the 300 plus prophecies would be 10 to the 157th power. So the chance of someone just fulfilling one or two of these prophecies in their lifetime was 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The chance of any one man in their life fulfilling 48 of the 300 would be 10 to the 157th power. Basically, it's impossible. It's impossible. And when you read the Gospels, and you read what Jesus did, and what Jesus set forth, and all that he taught, and you start reading the Old Testament prophecies, you realize very quickly, he fulfilled them all. And the ones that weren't fulfilled in his lifetime are the ones that will be fulfilled when he comes again. When he comes again, then he will fulfill those prophecies as well. So I want you to think about this. As we journey to Bethlehem, as we journey to Christmas Day, and we start thinking about what Christ's birth really means, I want us to understand that Jesus literally changes everything. And he has been prophesied and was prophesied for hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. So what is the key in all this? What is the point in me giving you all this information? While the gospel writers give us little in the amount of quantity of verses— They give us enough detail and information to affirm prophecy written hundreds of years before he came. They give us just enough detail, just enough information, so that we can affirm prophecy that was written hundreds of years before. So over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about how does Christ in his coming change everything? How does he change everything? Well, the three areas we're going to look at next week and on 
is that Christ changes love. That Christ in his coming changes love. That how Christ in his coming changes me. Let's just stop for a moment. We're not going to camp here too long, but are you thankful that Christ changed you? Are you thankful that Christ has made you new? Are you thankful that he didn't just change you back here when you got saved, but he's changing you today? Do you ever just stop and think, God, thank you that you're not done with me? Because you know when we usually think that, when I usually think that, when I'm about done with me. You ever been done with yourself and just frustrated with yourself and then you realize God encourages you and say, I'm not done. I'm still working. I'm still, I'm still pruning you. I'm still producing fruit through you. And you're just blown away when you realize, God, in your sheer majesty and grace, you do that. And he changes everything. He changes love. He changes me. But also, he changes purpose. Christ in his coming changes purpose. Your purpose, my purpose, the purpose of the church, the purpose of all that we're here to do. I'm going to look not so much again at a passage in one of those Gospels this morning that we talked about. But I want to look at a passage in the book of Galatians that shows us that Christ in his coming changes family. That Christ in his coming changed and is changing family. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time, of the time, excuse me, was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son. Let's pray and ask God to speak through his word this morning. Fathers, we gather together. I pray, Lord, that as we come and spend this time before you and before your word, we've already worshiped you through song. We've already worshiped you through offering of our own money and finances and our time, our talents. We've offered to you this week an offering of worship through how we lived our life. We've offered to you this morning even at times of prayer, times of just thinking on you and being thankful for you and all that you have done and are doing in our lives. And so, Lord, as we come together this morning, we ask that we would gather together to be encouraged, to be strengthened. But, Lord, I pray that we would also come together this morning and realize that when you came over 2,000 years ago, that literally everything changed. And so as we dive into this idea about how you've changed our view and our understanding of family, I pray that you'd open up our hearts and minds. I pray that we would just be students of your word this morning and we would desire to be changed and to be a part of what you're doing. So Father, we ask that as we read these words, that you would open our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, may you have the freedom. May we offer to you the surrender so that you may fill us with your knowledge and with your wisdom and with your peace, that we would be changed and live differently because of it. Father, thank you now we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, in verse 4, we read an amazing truth. An amazing truth. God sent forth his son. Again, what are we tempted to in this time and this day and age of commercialism and hurry and busy? We talked about it even last week. What's the most important part of the Christmas tree? What's the most important part of the Christmas tree? Okay, the stand. You know, I got to say this. I got to share this. I had somebody Wednesday, they sent me a message through Facebook and said it was a picture of this little tree, okay, this little tiny tree. And it had these little plastic like legs that come off. You kind of click them in there. You guys know what I mean? And it was a picture of the tree standing. And then it was a picture of this one of the legs that looked a little different. And in the background, it was like really black. It was blacker than the other two gray stand parts. And in the background, there was a roll of black tape a piece of cardboard in the shape of this tree stand leg, and some scissors. And I thought, what is, what is this? And the person put those two pictures and then said, reminds me of your sermon from Sunday. Now this person doesn't even live in the state, okay? And I said, well, I had a lot of questions. I said, well, what am I looking at here, you know? Well, come to find out the leg had broken, and this person out of cardboard and tape manufactured, made a little part of the leg to come off so the tree would stand upright because when they didn't have it on there, it was wanting to fall over. And said, this is so funny because I just listened to your message. And that blows me away. Somebody's on our app in a different state listening to what we're doing here and encouraged by what you're doing here. And so let me just say this real quick. A little while ago, we took an offering. 
And I know it might feel like, man, where's this money going? What are we doing? What am I investing in? Missions globally, yes, service here, ministries that go out of here. But you support this ministry, which allows us to be able to put our messages on an app, which costs money, by the way. And that app is downloaded by people that don't even attend church here, but they're encouraged by the word of God that you're supporting through your generosity. So you're impacting someone in a different state with the word of God just by your offering of just generosity. And so I just want to stop for a second and say thank you again for your generosity because it makes a difference. I, I was blown away when this person said, yeah, I listen to most, most weeks I listen to the messages that you guys put on there. That was such an encouragement to me to think, man, you guys, you kind of have to hear them because you're here. But I mean, for somebody to choose to go on there, that's a whole different level of insanity. I don't know why you'd ever want to put this voice in your ears when you don't have to. But, but I was blown away by that. That's just such an encouragement to me. But I want it to be an encouragement to you that you're touching lives and you don't even realize it by just being the church and just being generous. And so thank you for that. But as we were thinking about that last week, this idea of God sending forth his son, that the whole point of Christmas is him coming to us, God with us, Emmanuel. And I want that to be a centerpiece of what we're doing this, the next couple of weeks. I want it to be the focal point because, listen, the reality is in just the last week, maybe you've already started getting stressed again. Maybe you've already felt some of that weight again. Maybe you're already feeling a little burden again. Maybe last week you said, no, Lord, I'm done. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have these enjoying moments. I'm going to enjoy the get-tos, not feel the weight of the have-tos. I'm going to enjoy the get-tos, not make them into burden-carrying have-tos. But maybe this week you've already started feeling that weight again. You've already feeling that pressure. I know we were doing some Christmas shopping last night. And there's nothing more frustrating than Christmas shopping on your phone. And you find what you want right? You with me? And you're like, oh, that's it. That's the price. That's everything. Size, medium, out of stock. Okay, let's try this other one. Size, medium, out of stock. I got 747 larges, 3,000 smalls, zero mediums. How does that happen? Who's in the back room of this warehouse making these decisions saying, oh, we're a little low on mediums. Let's buy some larges because we want to, we don't want to run out of those anytime soon. It's just insanity. So, but what happens? You start feeling that weight. I got I to gotta get this gift. I got to get it. It's gonna, it's, they're going to ship it. It's got to be here by the 21st, 22nd, so I can make sure it's time to wrap it. Whew. Guess what? Whether that specific gift comes or not, Christmas will come. Jesus came. We celebrate his coming, and we rejoice and worship him. Whatever gifts are or are not under the tree really are irrelevant to the true gift that Christ came. And so let me encourage parents this morning, because I know we feel this. Don't stress to get your child the gift that you think they really want. Don't lose time with them and investing in them because you think, but I really need to get this thing. Yes, if you can get the thing they want and it's there, great, whatever, all good, but make sure you keep it in balance. They'd much rather have you than something under the tree. You get what I'm saying? I hope this is sinking in a little bit because I know for me I have to remind myself of this too. God sent forth his son. Paul writes it as a matter of fact in verse 4. He just puts it there. But I pray that it would be so much more to us today than just reading a handful of words on a page. But let's look at what he starts with here in verse 4. Because this, this coming to us changes everything. And we need to understand how it changed everything and how it changes family. Verse 4, but when the fullness of the time was come. See, Jesus was sent. If you're taking notes, Jesus was sent. Simple outline. In or rather at, excuse me, at the perfect time. Jesus was sent at the perfect time. It was perfect climate in the known world for Christ to come. It was politically the right time. It was perfect in the time of what was coming through the Roman Empire in the way of transportation. Uh, many of you have heard the Romans and studied this. The Romans were ingenious in building infrastructure roadways connecting different places, ports of commerce that you could get to quickly because it was all under the Roman Empire. And because Christ came when he came and the Apostle Paul is sent out when he is sent out all those years later, the Apostle Paul is able to impact the known world because of what? Being a Roman citizen, utilizing Roman transportation, all that was put into place. It was at the perfect time for Christ to come. It was the perfect time politically under what's called the Pax Romana. There was peace in the Roman Empire. It was a perfect time for him to come. 
It was in the right position for Israel. Because why? Israel had drifted so far from what they were supposed to be. They were becoming obsessed with the image of the thing, not the God of the thing. And God knowing at the perfect moment where Israel needed to be so that they would be open to the Savior. Now, I know when you hear that, you think, but they weren't open to the Savior. They crucified the Savior. But that had to be at the perfect time according to God's plan, and it was perfect when he came. You see, Christ came at the right time. It wasn't an accident. Christmas was not an accident. Christmas did not happen and God go, oops, I didn't see that coming. Christmas was at the perfect time of God's plan, his eternal plan. And so I want to focus on that just for a second because I think we negate that sometimes, that Christmas was a part of God's plan from before the foundations of the world. God planned, Christ planned to come at Christmas. And he set in motion these things that would change eternity future, including our eternities as we can now be saved and know Christ. You see, he came at the perfect time. Jesus was sent at the perfect time. But Jesus was sent being born of a woman. Jesus was sent being born of a woman. Look at verse 4 again. God sent forth his son made of a woman. Made of a woman. Notice that the Apostle Paul mentions God and mentions Mary, but does not mention Joseph. This doesn't mean that Joseph wasn't important in the life of Christ or that he wasn't vital or impactful in the life of Christ. Dads, you make a huge impact in your child's life. You make a huge impact in your child's life. I know as a dad, sometimes I feel like it's not getting through. Sometimes you just feel like it's not working. Sometimes you feel like you've blown it a little too many times. I'm sure no dads can relate to that. I'm sure no dads have ever been thankful for grace. But when I think about this fact that fathers make a huge impact for Christ, I always have to stop and realize, man, what would it be like to be the earthly father raising the Messiah? I mean, like, what would it be, moms, to be Mary raising the Messiah? I mean, I would be a little scared. Because here's the thing. What if you send him to his room and he didn't really do it? And then when he's like 30, 31, he comes to you and says, Dad, listen, I just want you to know, sovereign God, I told you I didn't do it. I would be like, please don't curse me like the fig tree. Okay, like, leave me alone. I'm good. Okay. Just kidding. God would never do that. But when you think about this idea here, dads are so vitally important. So why doesn't Paul mention this? Is it because he didn't think dads were important? No, he spends a lot of time speaking about fathers provoke not your children to wrath and those kind of verses there. He understands that dynamic. He doesn't mention Joseph because Joseph wasn't involved in the conception of Christ because Christ was born of a virgin birth. Because Christ was born of a virgin birth, it only involved God through the working of the Holy Spirit and Mary. So see again, even in this little verse all the way in Galatians, we're not in Matthew or Luke. We read something that points us back to the truth of the prophecy that he would come this way. You see, why did God send Jesus to us at the perfect time and to be born as a baby? God had sent many messengers and prophets to speak on his behalf. Why did God send Jesus? Why did he send his son at the perfect time to be born of a virgin? He had sent prophets and messengers time and time and time again. At this time, though, he decides, I'm not sending another prophet. I'm not sending another messenger. I'm going to send my son. And in Christ's coming, we don't just hear a message from God. We actually are face-to-face with God. And do you see the beauty of that? I'm not going to just send another messenger. I'm not just going to send another prophet. I'm going to send my son. And when they see him, they will see me. What did he tell the disciples? How long have you been with me? And you've not realized if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Man, Christ manifested to us the fullness of the Godhead. We saw and see God, the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and God, the Son, all in the person of Christ and his ministry on earth. And we are blessed because we got to dwell, to see the glory of God dwell among us. But he took on flesh and dwelt among us. Christ did so much more than just speak on behalf of God. He is God. And came to stand with us by demonstrating his love to us so that we might be able to stand with him. See, he didn't just come to show us the Father. He didn't come to just tell us a message. He came to say, I'm going to stand with you. 
I'm going to be your defense. I'm going to be your mediator. I'm going to be your sacrifice. I'm going to be the one that goes before you. And when your sin is obvious and deserves the wrath of God, I will cover it with my blood. I will cover it with my sacrifice. I stand with those who are my church. So he didn't just come to teach us a message or to tell us a lesson. He didn't come to just even show us the Father. He came to do so much more than that. He came to be all that we needed him to be. He said, I will stand with you. I will stand with you. You see, he was born at the perfect time, being born of a woman. But also we see that Jesus was sent being born under the law. Galatians 4, 4, we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. You see, the law of God was in effect, and all of mankind was under the law. If someone knew the law or not, it was irrelevant. They had violated the law of God because we have all sinned before God. What does the book of Romans tell us? There is none righteous. No, not one. You see, at this time, the law, whether you were under the law as a Jew and you knew the law and you broke the law, whether you were a Gentile outside of the law, you broke the law. The Bible says in the book of Romans, Paul elaborates this even more. He says our own conscience speaks against us. We look at our lives and they speak against us. We know we've broken God's law. And so Jesus comes at the perfect time, being born of a woman, being born under the law. He comes to us in while we're at, in, under the law, the burden of the law, and he rescues us from that burden. He rescues us from that weight. Jesus came as one under the law. He submitted himself under his own law and fulfilled every commandment without fail. He fulfilled every commandment without fail. He did what we could not do. And so we stand righteous and justified and forgiven before God the Father, not because of something we do, because of what Christ did for us. You see, he came at the perfect time. He came under or being born of a woman, and he came under the law. He did all of that so he could fulfill the law and then offered us his sinless life as a sacrifice for us. And so we don't just glory in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We glory in the sinless life of Christ because it made him the perfect sacrifice, and we are accredited that righteousness in this life. I could not fulfill the law. He fulfilled the law for me. We are all guilty before God. Now, we might think that we're good because we haven't broken the big ones. I haven't done the big things. I haven't broken the big laws. I haven't done the big crimes. I've only done these little ones over here. And we even do this with other people. We look down on some people who break certain laws, and we are totally okay with people who break other laws. This is why you judge, criticize, condemn, and even have hateful and bitter feelings towards somebody that's convicted of the crime of pedophilia, but you're totally fine with the person who speeds and breaks the, the speed limit. Both are breaking the law. Both are going against the law. We, in our human minds, we say, well, obviously those are two extremely different things. But what's the heart of the matter? It's still violating the law. It's still breaking the law set before us. In the same sense, God's law, you don't get to say, well, I've never killed anyone. I've only lied. You don't get to say to God, well, I've never killed anyone. I've never committed adultery. I've only coveted my neighbor's goods. And think you're okay. The book of James says, no, no, if you've offended in one area, you've offended in all. So the person that's committed murder and the person that's looked at their, their neighbor's RV and said, and really lusted for that thing, I really want that thing, it's the same heart. It's the same broken, sinful, vile heart that produces those results. And that's the point of the law, to reveal to us our brokenness. That apart from Christ, I have no hope of forgiveness. I need his gospel. You see, this is why when you realize that he came at the perfect time, he was born of a woman, born under the law, to do all that was required so that we might be saved, everything is changed. This is why Christ's coming to us is so powerful. Because it is the gift we needed but didn't know we wanted. Christ coming to you and coming to me and coming to this world over 2,000 years ago is the gift we all desperately needed but nobody knew we wanted. I, didn't, I wouldn't want that gift. I want my sin. I want my darkness. I want my way. I want my desires. A lot of us still live this way today. 
There's a lot of those that are even in Christ that are battling with this right now. You want to follow Christ, but you also really want your way. But when you realize that his gift offered to you changes everything, your way becomes so much less significant. And then his way becomes what we drive and, or strive after and we, we walk after. And I believe in my own life, the reason the change that Christ brought with his coming lessens for us over time is because we really forget how much he really changed. But I think the more we dwell on the change that he has made in all these areas, and the way he's changed even family, everything changes, and it reminds us and it reinvigorates us to focus back on him and to be excited and worship him. So we see that he came at the perfect time, being born of a woman, born under the law. Let's look at the verse 5 here. This is how we're going to really kind of tie it into seeing how he changed family. Verse 5, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Why did Jesus do all that he came to do? Why did he put himself through all that he put himself through? Because he desired to grow God's family by adopting us into it. Why did Jesus Come, We see in Galatians 4, 5, he desired to grow God's family by adopting us into it. Isn't that amazing? And did you ever stop and think about that? That you were chosen by God. He adopted you with purpose and intent. When Christ offers us the forgiveness of sins through his gospel, he is redeeming us from the power and the presence of sin and adopting us into his family. The truth is, Jesus has a place for you and his family. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, there is a place for you in the family of God. He has room for you. And he desires for you to be a part of his family. So how do we do that? How are we adopted as the sons and daughters of God? By confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, turning from them and turning to Christ as Savior, receiving his grace by faith, and you are now a child of God. You see, there's a saying out there that we're all God's children. It's pretty popular. I understand why people say it. I'm trying to show that common respect that we should have for humanity, that we're all valuable. But the truth is, biblically, when you look at God's word, we are not, as a human race, all God's children. We are, however, all God's creation. We are all, all of humanity was created by God. That gives us our purpose. That gives us our worth. You are intrinsically valuable, not by what you can do, how you perform, what money's in your account, whatever it is, social status, status uh, gender, any of those things. None of that makes you intrinsically valuable. You are intrinsically valuable because God himself created you and formed you in your mother's womb. And that is the wonder that gives us worth. But when we become followers of Christ, when we are saved and redeemed and we receive Christ as Savior, repenting of our sins and trusting in him, we are no longer just his creation. We are now his children. And so the truth is, if you are outside the body of Christ, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, then God is your creator, but he is not your father. He is not your father, but here's the beauty of it. He desires to be. And the only thing stopping that from happening is you, are you refusing to receive Christ? If you are, then that's what's hindering God bringing you into his family. But if you will open your heart and mind to him and say, Lord, I repent of my sins. I trust in you as Savior by faith. I receive your grace. I receive your gospel. The Bible says that today could be the day of salvation for you, and you will be taken from outside to inside. I know it's difficult to believe that God would do that for all of us, even for myself. But according to God's word, he desires to adopt all of us into his family. He wants to adopt you and bring you into his family. And by the way, adoption is a very good thing. And understand in the culture of this day, if somebody would adopt a child, that child was theirs as though it was their own child. You could not look at that child as a second-class citizen in the home. That child is any or is at the same level as the other children. 
This is my son, my daughter. Do not believe for a second that because God adopted you into his family that somehow he looks down on you as not good enough. No, no, no. He loves you as a father loves a son or a daughter. But the truth is, adoption costs something. Some of you have looked into adoption. Some of you have adopted children. Some of you have raised adopted children. You know that there is an actual financial cost to that. I find that maybe what I've seen, the numbers I've seen, I find that a little bit ridiculous. I wish that was more feasible for many to be able to adopt. But I understand there's a cost there. There has to be a cost there because there's things involved in this process. And the truth is, your adoption into Christ's family cost something. So what did our adoption cost Jesus Christ? Paul says that Jesus came to redeem us. The word redeem literally means to purchase from the marketplace. To purchase from the marketplace. That Christ paid everything so that you could be purchased and redeemed. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. It cost Jesus the public ridicule and mockery and abuse at the hand of his own creation. It cost Jesus everything. But the key that I want to focus in on is that Jesus was willing to do all of this. He was willing to do and endure all of this. Why was he so willing? So that we could be adopted into his family When we are adopted into God's family, God and his grace is glorified above all things. We are blessed to know him and be known by him. And also, we are able to show and display the grace of God to others. That when you are adopted son and daughter of God, you are able to display the very grace that you've received freely. Freely. And to me, that's the most amazing part of this whole journey, this whole story, is that I was adopted. It cost him everything, but it cost me nothing. And you might say, well, no, no, I got to give up my desires. I got to give up my wants. I got to give up my own way of doing things. Believe me, when you receive Christ, you will realize you didn't really want those things anyway. Now, it's hard to believe that before we know Christ. Well, no, 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 but I really want these things. When you really understand what Christ gave you and did for you and provided for you, and then you go to him with your little thing, he's going to change your heart. He's going to change your mind. All of a sudden, he's going to say, I'm going to give you the desires of your heart because now your desires are starting to align with mine for you. And you'll realize it's so much better when we just submit and surrender. Instead of trying to hold on to our own things, when we realize what he did for us, freely given to us, it costs us nothing, but it costs Jesus everything. But why? So that God is glorified and we are adopted into the family of God. It literally changes our whole understanding of family. And this is where I want to share that for my own story, some of you have heard my testimony before, and I'm not going to go real long on this, but for me, that was the hardest thing for coming to Christ, to come to Christ for me, was to actually believe that he was a father and he was good. That was so hard for me. 16-year-old kid, my dad left before I was two, abused my mom, was an alcoholic and a horrible person, apparently anyway, had no kind of a father figure until I was about seven years old. My stepdad comes into my life, took care of us, provided for us, but wasn't a Christian man, didn't always do things the right way, wasn't always good with us as far as discipline areas, and I'll leave it there. And as I got older, you know, I started really having a hard time with this idea of people leaving me. You know, when I was in eighth grade, I, I was getting really bad grades, being a really dumb kid breaking the rules, being stupid. And, and so my stepdad said, well, I'm gonna, you're getting kicked out. I'm kicking you out of my house. You're going to go live with your mom down in Detroit. And so I went from my mom's house in the city, leaving there, so she doesn't want me, to my stepdad's house up here in Brown City for a couple of years. Well, he doesn't want me. He's kicking me back out. I got to go back down here. My mom was an alcoholic at the time at the bar. When she wasn't bartending, she was at the bar drinking. So I spent a lot of time just by myself or with friends in, in, in the neighborhood down there. And then, you know, I came to 16, and my stepdad says, hey, I want you to come hang out with us for the summer. And I was a lot of bitterness and anger there. I came to North Goodland. I went to play softball with the church. I met a kid there, and I joke about this a lot. And if you don't know, I don't mean this in any kind of a rude way or a disrespectful way. It's just what it was. I, I went from being a, a, a white kid in a, in a school in Detroit where there was 3,000 students and only five white kids, okay, to moving from that to Brown City, 
I'm just going to, you probably can figure out the demographic there, okay? And the one kid that I made friends with the first time I was at North Goodland was an African-American teenager. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, this is awesome. But we got to be friends and got to hang out a little bit and went to camp, received Christ. And now I'm at camp. And I remember thinking, the guy was talking about God's love for you. And he wants to be your heavenly father. And he's going to be that father for you. And my first thought was, that is not a good thing. I don't want God as my father because no father has ever really been there for me. Now, in my immaturity, I wasn't realizing how my stepdad had been there for me. You understand? But that was the hardest thing for me was a father figure that is a good father figure and somebody who wouldn't leave me. Those are the two things. Because my life to that point was, we just don't want you. Get out. Nope, get out. Nope, get out. We don't want you here. We don't want you here. And so when I finally realized that God is a father like none we've ever known, that his love is perfect, and he will in no wise cast you out. You know the verse in Hebrews? He will not forsake you. Man, that spoke volumes to me. Wait, so he, will, he won't leave me? He won't kick me out when I fail? When I don't perform? And God's love was real to me in that moment. So I received Christ. You know what's amazing is after receiving Christ, my stepdad and I's relationship became amazing. We got so much closer. He came to know Christ a handful of years later. My younger brother received Christ that same summer. My mom rededicated her life later that, the next January. And in a moment, I saw firsthand how God changes family. See, my family was the most dysfunctional family you would want to be around. We used to say we put the fun in dysfunctional, okay? There was a lot of craziness in my family. But God changed all of that. I didn't change it. Arguing with my family didn't change it. Fighting with them didn't change it. Christ changed it. When we were or are adopted by God, our position changes. We were on the outside of the family of God, and now I'm invited to join him at his table, to sit at the table with my Savior and enjoy time of fellowship and family with him. It is like nothing we've ever experienced. When we were or are adopted, our legal status also changes, not just the social family kind of status, our legal status changes. I was a lawbreaker. Now I am a son. I'm an heir of Christ. Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read two more verses and we're going to wrap it up. Two more verses. Galatians 4 and verse 6. And because you are sons or daughters, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. That's our position changing. However, understand that does not mean that we don't serve Christ. We don't serve Christ because we have to serve him. We're not bound to serve him because our status is servant. We are a son who then joyfully chooses to give ourselves to the Savior as his servant. It's a whole different perspective. He says, wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Nowadays, people want to talk about being that heir. You get on TV, and a lot of people get really heavy on that. You can be a millionaire because you're an heir of Christ, and he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Let's pray. Send us your money. 800 number. Here we go. They'll preach. They'll preach. But what is that really saying there? It's not so much about what we inherit financially. Because in Christ, you realize that stuff doesn't last anyway. Man, we inherit an incorruptible treasure. We inherit an inheritance of being with our Savior forever. That Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. That where I am, there you may be also. When we die, guess what we inherit? That place. He's doing all this for us. He is, he is calling us his heir. I am justified by faith through grace. Paul says we have a relationship with the Father now. And the Father has given us his spirit to seal us as sons. The term Abba, Father, here, many have referenced this and say what they believe it means when you study it out, as I've studied it and seen some things here. There's an American cultural, traditional church way of looking at this, and then there's what I believe the Bible is actually saying here. So many say that this means that we can call Father Daddy, that it's this intimate terminology. However, in Paul's audience's understanding, they would have no reference for such a term for their father. There was no relational thing. They're called daddy from dad. That's something that we 
uh, culturally understand. So what is Paul saying here then if it's not this term, daddy? This idea, Abba and Father. It's not two, or it's not one name, it's two things. Abba, Father. And that Abba is referring to more closely to the Hebrew understanding of that term. One author says it this way, and I like the way he defines it. This Abba Father asserts not childlike relation to God. So hear me now. This term does not relate or asserts relation to God like a child. Now, are we supposed to come before God as children? Yes, but that's not what this phrase is speaking to here. What is it saying? That there is a privileged status of the adult son. It's claiming a privileged status with God as an heir, as an adult son. Do you see how that fits in the context maybe a little bit better than this this intimate term of childlike daddy that we throw it around with? Paul's point here is, listen, everything is different. Everything is changed. When we celebrate the birth of Christ, we can celebrate that because he came, everything changes. I am a legitimate member of God's family because he came to rescue me and adopt me as his his own. You in Christ are a legitimate member of God's family. Celebrate him this morning because he changed family for all of us. We are his and he is ours. He is your father. So go to him this morning and allow him to speak to you. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we have a time of invitation? Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, I pray, Lord, that above all things, we would have a willingness to be surrendered to you. That when we were on the outside looking in, that you adopted us. You chose to redeem us. And not because there was all these redeemable qualities in us. The Bible's pretty clear. We were enemies. That we really didn't want you, and we were so full of sin. We didn't want your lights. We rejected your light when you came. So naturally, we didn't even want the gift that you were offering, but I'm so thankful that in spite of that, you came and you offered your grace and your gospel to us. And that in so offering it to us, and because you have allowed us to to hear your gospel, those of us that have chosen to receive your gospel, to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ the Savior, you have adopted us You call us sons and daughters. That we are not just a sinner saved by grace, but we're the beloved. We're members of the family of God and not because of anything we've done. We didn't earn our spot at the table. You offered it to us freely. And so I pray, Lord, that as we celebrate the coming of Christ, as we continually walk through this month of December with all the decorations and all the dinners, and all the fun and festivities, I pray that we would know that it's your coming that changes everything, that you changed family. I pray that we would go to you this morning as our Father, that we would lay our request at your feet, and that we would allow you to have your will in your way in our lives. Father, be with those this morning that don't know you as Savior. May they realize that it's not about going to church, it's not about being a good person, that we must receive Christ, receive the gospel, repent of our sins, and trust in you. And only then are we brought into the family of God, redeemed sons and daughters of God. Thank you for your grace. Work now as only you can. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? As we are led in a song of invitation, would you respond to what God is doing this morning? Would you come to him as your heavenly father? Are you burdened or carrying anything that you want to come and say, Lord, I lay this at your feet. As my father, would you receive this? And show me your wisdom. Show me your ways that you would be glorified. Maybe you want to come and praise him for changing your family. Maybe you broke a cycle in your family that you're thankful for. However you want to respond, would you respond this morning as we pray and sing?